0: We'll get into our text this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy, for your grace. Lord, these mercies and graces that we experience, that take for, we take for granted, are, are new every morning. Indeed, great is your faithfulness, a faithfulness that we know incarnate in the person of your Son. And Lord, we come in your Son this morning and by your Spirit, recognizing how important the Word of God is to our souls. We need to hear from you today. So in spite of this weak preacher, we pray that your spirit would do a mighty work of illumination. May this time be a significant means of grace for every listener here this morning. May we have ears to hear. We ask this in the name of our Christ. Amen. In 1999, Heather and I had the opportunity to go to Los Angeles. Her band that she was in at the time was invited to be a part of an event there, and we were happy to learn that our hotel was just walking distance from the renowned chef, Wolfgang Puck's renowned restaurant, the Beverly Hills restaurant, Spago. And so one afternoon, when we had a little downtime there, we went to eat at Spago. It's about two thirty in the afternoon, so there weren't many people there. And so we got privileged seating in one of the most scenic parts of the restaurant. And as we're eating, uh, this fellow walks over to us who has a an apron on, and he just begins to engage us. Really nice fellow. We we assumed he was he looked like a server. And he's asking us questions, one question after another. He's asking us where we're from. He seemed to detect I had a, an accent. And I, I clarified that I, I did not have an accent. Uh, but he, being from Austria, did have an accent. Um, he asked us why we were there and what we were doing and, and where we were staying. And he asked us how we liked the food. Well, after about seven to ten minutes... I was glad he had come, approached us, but I was tired of the conversation. I wanted some one-on-one time uh, with my wife, um, so I never even asked him a question. I, I didn't want to encourage him to stay. <laughs> but then all of a sudden, about 10 minutes into this conversation, I noticed something on his apron, the initials WP. Now, Heather had already noticed this, but I had not noticed it, and it hit me, and I said, by the way, we haven't introduced ourselves. My name is Brian, and this is Heather, and he smiled, and he said, I'm Wolfgang. I'm glad you came to my restaurant today. I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you have a good time in L.A., Hope to see you again. And he walked away. And there we had Wolfgang Puck at our table. And for 10 minutes, I acted dismissively because I did not know with whom I was dealing. So it was for David as he brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Last time we saw that he had planned this procession in accordance with his own wisdom. And then he was shocked and enraged when the hammer fell, when judgment fell on Uzzah for touching, simply touching the ark as it was toppling, about to fall on the ground. David, in response, stopped the procession, and he placed the ark into the home, probably just the nearest by home, of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. David is clearly acting dismissively because he does not know, at least as well as he should, with whom he is dealing. He seems to think at this point that the Lord errs on the side of dangerous at the expense Of his goodness. And that brings us to our passage where now David is about to renew his mind. David is about to have a worship reformation. That brings us to verse 12 of our text. We saw last time that the ark of the Lord, which symbolized the presence of God, right? It remained in the house of Obadiah, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Verse 12, it was told, David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Now we saw last time as well that Obed-Edom, interestingly, was a Philistine. Now, why do we say that? He was a Gittite, which meant he was from the city of Gath, one of the five major cities of the Philistines. So here is a Philistine convert to Yahweh, which is just the fruit, the promise made to Abraham that through the seed of Abraham, all the blessings, all the nations of the earth would be blessed by that seed. And through the Lord's blessing of this Philistine convert, David's affections were reopened, renewed in and by the goodness of God. Now that's the power of a godly family. One godly and faithful family, their testimony of God's faithfulness impacted David. God's blessing on Obed-Edom was a key. It It was a key means that led to David's reformation of worship. You see, we either repel or attract people by the fruit or the lack of fruit in our life and in our family. But testimony alone does not change us. David saw the blessing of God on this faithful family. But testimony alone does not have the power to change anyone. It's the word of God that changes us. And somehow, we're not told how, the, David is reminded that the law specifically states that the ark could only be transported by the Kohathites, which was from these Kohathites were from the tribe of, of Levi. And, and you have these ringlets we see in, in Numbers 4. And you have to put the poles through those ringlets. And, and then you have to put the poles on the shoulders of the Kohathites. No carts. And we saw last time that they brought the ark on the cart. And now David gets it right. He has renewed his mind in the Word of God. And in 1 Corinthians, uh, Chronicles 15, we have... The parallel account. So 1 Chronicles 15 is the chronicler's account of this occasion. In 1 Chronicles 15, 13, David tells the Colethites, Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us. Broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule." So David implements the biblical procedures for transporting the ark. And 1 Chronicles 15, verse 2 tells us, Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord. Now notice with me in verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps... He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. So David's sacrifice of an ox and a fattened animal after the ark had only been moved for six steps likely reveals that he still had some concerns about God's anger over the Uzzah incident. But these sacrifices would also have been sacrifices of thanksgiving for a good start and also part prayer for a safe completion. We don't know why he went six steps. Some have speculated that somehow David is, is symbolizing that rest and shalom come after the, the sacrifices are offered in a fallen world. It's hard to speculate there. But one thing we do know at this point, substitutionary sacrifice was the ground of of David's repentance and restoration. And this was his gospel. Remember, gospel does not come in John 3.16. The gospel begins in Genesis 3.15, and we see the gospel portrayed and pointed to by the sacrificial system that was given to Israel. And so that gospel is not only the ground of his repentance and his restoration, it's also what provokes worship in David's life. Notice in verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. Now that stretches us Baptists something fearless. But this is a man that's unencumbered because of mercy and grace. He danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So why is David so stirred by all this? It's because he's free. It's because he's free. Because the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, and what is that steadfast love? That hesed is God's covenantal commitment to his people. Because his faithfulness extends to the heavens, and through the mediation of these substitutionary sacrifices, he's free from God's judgment. There's no condemnation on David in spite of his lawless behavior over the previous days. And consequently, in humble response, he wears a linen ephod. Now, some will say that he's playing the part of a priest, but under the old covenant, The the priestly office and the kingly office were two separate offices, okay? So even though this is priestly garb, there was a unique ephod that the high priest would wear, and outside of that, no one was forbidden or restricted from wearing an ephod. So why is he wearing an ephod at this moment? Well, he's likely reacting against his lawlessness, He had clearly broken God's law in bringing up the ark the first time. And now he is ridding himself of of kingly apparel. And he's putting on uh, garments of, of service, of divine service. He's emphasizing who truly is the king, in other words. That brings us to verse 15. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Again, this is the response to mercy. And mercy produces freedom. But when you're free, but when you're free from the condemnation that comes from our sin, the people who aren't free will have trouble with your freedom. In fact, many of you probably have experienced that in your own families. It certainly is experienced oftentimes in churches. Notice in verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, noticed she's not described in any other way in this text but the daughter of Saul three times. She looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her her heart. This is the first real insight that we've had into Michael as a person since 1 Samuel 19, verse 12. And when we saw her last there, She was also looking through a window at David. And at the time, David was her beloved husband. And he was disappearing in the darkness after she had helped him escape Saul's goons who had come to kill David. And we're arguing from silence here, but he apparently made no attempt to see her again until she was taken from the husband that Saul gave her, Paltiel, and returned kind of forcibly to David as just one of several wives. Remember, David at this point is a polygamist. He also has concubines. So Michael, in one sense, had legitimate reason to be upset. But in allowing her anger to blind her to the Lord, and that ark, as we saw last week, symbolized the presence of God. It symbolized that he's a revealing God, a reconciling God, a residing God. It symbolized that he's a resourcing God. And she is blind to that reality. She's blind to the Lord's glory. And now she's becoming her own worst enemy. That's always the case. Always the case. When you have spite, notice that's the language That's used here. She had spite. She despised David in her heart. When you have spite towards someone else in your heart, now you can rationalize it. You can reason why you have it justifiably. But when you have that in your heart, it crowds out the glory of God. It's impossible to flourish. Impossible when you have spite in your heart. But in spite of that, your spite cannot thwart what God's doing. It cannot thwart the kingdom of God. Notice in verse 17. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place. Inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And I love this. David offered burnt offerings, likely through the priest, and peace offerings before the Lord. Now we learned when we studied... Exodus on Sunday night, that with burnt offerings, an entire animal is consumed by fire. And so the smoke of that offering symbolically rises to the heavens, rises to God, who now sees that a sacrifice has been made for sin in the place of the true culprit. Again, let's remember, the sacrificial system was not Israel being able to avoid judgment. Israel received judgment, but through substitution. God always judges sinners. And so the sacrificial system was God judging his people via substitution. And so the burnt offerings, the the smoke would go up after the animal had been completely consumed in the place of the true culprit, and nothing was left. The whole animal was given over to God, which represented full atonement and dedication to God. That's the burnt offering. But then the peace offering, what is that? The, the worshiper would actually eat, would consume a large part of that animal, and that peace offering revealed what kind of relationship God had has with his people once atonement was made. In fact, shalom, peace, restored. So we saw unlawful worship last week, didn't we? David is seeking to worship the Lord. They were celebrating. They were worshiping with with musical instruments, but it was unlawful. This week we see worship in accordance with Scripture. What is worship in accordance with Scripture? It's grounded by the gospel. God satisfying his divine justice through substitution. Worship grounded by the gospel and governed by the word of God. This is worship before the Lord. Notice verse 17 again. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. That phrase, before the Lord, is important. We're going to see it four times in our passage. Notice when we in verse 18. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. I love this imagery, it's a beautiful foreshadowing. Notice, through the mediation of the Messiah from the tribe of Judah, God is satisfied through substitutionary sacrifice. A blessing is received from the king and gifts are given. And then the people go in those gifts. Isn't that beautiful? What is the Old Testament preparing us for? He's preparing us for one. The scripture is preparing us for one who's even greater because this is just a shadow. Not all is well with the marriage of this particular bridegroom. That brings us to the last part of this chapter, the last part of this passage. We've seen a worship reformation. Now we're going to see a worship war. In verse 20, and David returned to bless his household, but Michael The daughter of Saul came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today. When you're free, people will question your motives, right? Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants' female servants as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Perhaps she had in her mind the fact, and maybe there's, there is kind of a, there's some kind of a prescience here that uh, David likes women, has a wandering eye. Maybe that, that seed has been planted in Michael, so some of this is justified. But three times in this text, Michael is said to be the daughter of Saul. And that becomes the emphasis of this text. What is that telling us? This is the clash of two kingdoms. And so even though Michael has a legitimate beef with David, as who is a polygamist, the text's emphasis is on the fact that she is the daughter of Saul, who was the king of a kingdom that is passing away. And now we have this new kingdom that will be. We'll learn in chapter seven an everlasting kingdom, which is being expressed through David. Now, now Michael's words may give the impression that her biggest concern was immodesty, but I don't think that's the issue, because David is clothed with an ephod, and you would wear garments under the ephod. So I don't think e- the uh, immodesty is the issue with her. Actually, what the problem is, she's repulsed by David's failure to act like a king should act. She had a perception of the way kings act by the way her father conducted himself. If you'll remember when we studied Saul, it was all about appearance, it was all about show. It was all about impressing people with his regality. In other words, Michael is not concerned with the kingdom of God. She's concerned with reputation. This past week, a a pastor friend of mine was telling me about a a lady in her mid-twenties in his church, and she's living with her boyfriend, living in sin. And they did the Matthew 18 with her. They went to her, called her to repentance, and then two or three went to her and called her to repentance, and they warned her, and eventually what Matthew 18 says is to bring it before the church and have the church plead. Well, this young lady has her parents in that church professing believers, and the parents are up in arms, not at their daughter, but at the elder. Why? Because they own a business in the community and they are concerned that their name is going to be tarnished in the community. In other words, they're more concerned with outward appearance than they are the kingdom of God. They're more concerned with their reputation than their daughter's repentance. And that's the way of Michael. That's the way of Michael. Look with me in verse 21. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord. Again, notice that phrase. Who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel. The people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them I shall be held in honor as they behold this one who who is worshiping before the Lord. The central reason why Michael was not one in spirit with David was that she was not one in worship with him. And this is a critical point that we need to drive home with our young people, our singles it's better not to be married than for you as a believer, if you're a believer, to be married to an unbeliever. And that's exactly what's happened here. An earlier text reveals that Michael had a stockpile of idols in her household. 1 Samuel 19, verse 13. And now with her heart given over to God replacements... With her heart given over to Messiah replacements, it's not surprising that she had little regard for the presence of God. It's not surprising that she had little regard for those who regard the presence of God. Conversely, note David's perspective again here, verse 21. It was before the Lord. It was before the Lord who chose me. This this phrase before the Lord occurs four times in our text, verse 14, verse 16, verse 18, and verse 21. This is what mattered to David. The glory of God had confronted his wayward heart, his lawlessness. As a result, while Michael viewed David's actions as before people, all right, David viewed himself as before the Lord. And these two contrasting perspectives will fundamentally impact your attitude, your actions, your motivations for everything you do in any situation. It was because David lived before the Lord. Remember this, 1 Samuel 17. It was because David lived before the Lord that he was not fearful of Goliath, the giant. All the other Israelite soldiers are shaking in their shoes because Goliath is before them. But David said, It's in the name of the Lord of hosts I come. He lived before the Lord. And it's the same same thing we do in everything we do. Whether or not we realize we are living our lives before the Lord that will determine everything on how we react to things, our motivation for things, our actions. This is the governing principle, or it should be, for every believer. So it fuels the believer on a rainy Monday morning. You've noticed it rains a lot around here especially on Mondays. For some reason, rainy days and Mondays always get me down. I'm thinking about writing a song. (laughs) And so you make your way to work on a rainy Monday morning. And it may be a job that you don't love. It may be a job that that you really don't like, but you're doing this job before the Lord. And, And it motivates you to do that job with excellence. It motivates the stay-at-home mom, who, by the way, is doing one of the most important things a person can do on the planet. And yet, it's often a thankless job. It's often done in obscurity, in isolation. It inspires the student. When a student lives before the Lord... It inspires that student to live counter culturally in a culture opposed with all of its peer pressures. It's the principle that sustains holiness between the opposite sexes. It sustains holiness for singles as they're waiting for God to provide them a spouse. It's the incentive for preachers to grind. You're doing this before the Lord, week in and week out, year in and year out in the study. When no one else is watching, you're doing it before the Lord, even though you may not see the fruit of your labors that you want to see. It's the mainspring for enduring criticism, and spiritual leaders do for enduring trials and and, and disappointments, living life before the Lord. For the believer, we are faithful before the world because we are first living before the Lord. Let me give you a couple of fancy Latin terms here. Corum Deo, before the face of God. Corum Mundo, before the world. We are faithful Corum Mundo, because we are first, Coram Deo, before the Lord. Life lived before the Lord. And that includes corporate worship. If before the world governs you, then, then you're going to give your enthusiasm to the things of this world, and, and worship will seem dull because God seems dull to you. You'll be cool, you'll be indifferent. But before the Lord, that perspective changes everything. Furthermore, even in corporate worship, there'll be times you feel like you're just doing it out of duty. Corporate worship, private worship. There are times, believe it or not, your pastor, when he opens up his Bible in the morning, I'm not feeling it. But even then, I do my duty before the Lord. And as you do your duty before the Lord, and you discipline yourself to stare at God's glory until you see it, you discipline yourself to reflect on his steadfast love and his faithfulness and his grace and his mercy, as David did, clearly, with his emphasis on the sacrifices, our hearts, our affections, I promise you, will eventually be lifted above the earth bound sphere of your problems. And from that renewed perspective, a gospel-driven perspective, sins forgiven, future secure, the Lord with us as the way, the truth, and the life, our fickle hearts, our fickle affections are renewed and warmed. Having said all that, it's unfortunate how often worship gets condensed to Bible reading, preaching, and singing, as important as that is, it's vital. You know that singing is mentioned 400 times in the Bible. You think it's important? But we cannot, we must not confuse our worship activity. With our worship identity. In other words, worship isn't primarily our activity. It's first our identity. We were created to be worshipers by God. That means even an atheist worships his or her way through life. Every person everywhere worships their way through every moment of their lives, which means that even as David is worshiping, so is Michael. Don't think that there's a worshiper here and a non-worshipper. David is living as a worshiper before the Lord. And Michael is enthralled with something in the creation that is being threatened by David's freedom and liberty. As Paul Tripp says, Everything we say, everything we do is an act and expression of worship. Think about that. So, for example, your Sunday school class has a dinner. And unbeknownst to you, you have named, and I'm going to use uh, uh, this illustration because this is something I've struggled with. Not pointing at anybody in here but me. You have named respect, approval, and esteem, and popularity from others as your God. I say your God because it's taken on a status that's more important to you than the Lord. All right? So that's so critical to you. So you live for the acceptance and the esteem and the respect of others. So at that dinner, everything you say, everything you do will be an attempt to curry respect and approval from others. Sometimes you can go out of your way to appear humble when actually what you're doing is trying to curry respect from others. Others will do the opposite. They will remind you of their accomplishments. They'll remind you of their degrees. They'll remind you of what they have achieved in life. And if this goal is accomplished, then the dinner was a success. You could apply that to sports, academics, career, anything. But if you feel ignored or dismissed or disregarded and someone else received more respect than you at that dinner, then the dinner is a disappointment. And it may be that that person that got more respect than you did becomes your rival maybe even your enemy. In other words, that dinner has everything to do with worship. It's not just a dinner. It has everything to do with worship. We have to expand our definition of worship to everything we do and everything we say. If we limit worship to Bible reading and singing, we're going to be oblivious to all the times we worship. Which, by the way, we're having a business meeting tonight. It's a worship service. We're not going to be preaching, but everything we do is an act of worship. Romans one twenty five is the greatest diagnosis on our natural worship condition. It's a verse you should memorize. Romans 1, it will help you understand you. It'll help you understand the person in the mirror. Romans 1:25 20, says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature, the creation, rather than the creator. That's our default position. So back to the Sunday school dinner. If you're living before the Lord that's your perspective, you're not going to be concerned about personal status. Your heart will be humbled and at rest. That's how you know. Because your life is first before the Lord before it's before the world. But if you've exchanged the worship of God for worship of popularity for the worship of respect and esteem and approval from others, you'll be looking, you'll be on a perpetual search to make everything about you. For every believer, every believer, life in a fallen world is one big worship war. It's one big worship war. And even though Jesus has delivered us by his, his cross, his resurrection, from the penalty of false worship, he's delivered us from the power of false worship, we have been made new creations in Christ by the Spirit who regenerates us and births repentance and faith. And we now have All capacity to worship the Lord at all times, in all places, in all circumstances, in all weather. Our sinful flesh, that unredeemed part of ourselves, will still fight to worship the creation every day. And that's one reason, by the way, why corporate worship is so vital. We don't go to church to impress God. That would be like a first-grade upward basketball player thinking he can impress Michael Jordan. You don't impress him by going to church. You don't earn favor by going to church. If you're going to have favor with God, it comes in Jesus alone. But one of the central reasons corporate worship is so vital is that every time we gather, it's a means of grace by which God in Christ frees us from our addiction to the shadow glories of this creation. That's all they are, is they're shadow glories. They point beyond themselves to someone greater. And, and shadow glory enthrallment, shadow glory in addiction is costly. Notice with me in verse 23 as we close this out. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. We're not told why. Was it a judgment? We're not told why. No need to speculate. What is clear is that the house of Saul will be finally cut off. Not even the potential of a grandson having a role in God's kingdom. But the text does imply if she had only lived before the Lord, like David, things would have been different. That's as far as we can take that. If only she had eyes to see the glory of the ark ascending to the city of peace, the city of God, as the Psalms teach us. Jerusalem, the very place where Melchizedek, the priest king, had mediated God's blessing to Abraham the constitutional father of the Jews, the Hebrews, the Israelites. If only she had had eyes to see that this was the very place where Abraham, Mount Moriah, had offered up his son Isaac on the altar. 2 Chronicles 3.1 tells us that very hill, And God saved Israel through substitution by providing a ram in the thicket If only she had eyes to see that this event, the ascent of God to his city, pointed to a greater ascent. As they say in Israel today, Aliyah, the greater Aliyah, as the greater David, the very embodiment of all that the Ark of the Covenant represented, was enthroned upon his victory over false worship. Upon his victory over the evil one that provokes this false worship, a victory for us as the Lamb of God, taking away our sins in his person, being judged for our sins in his person, our sins of false worship, our sins of idolatry, our sins of replacing God for the creation. Taking the judgment for that and being raised for our justification and then endowing us with gifts, the gifts of the assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, an increase in grace and perseverance until the end. If only she had understood that when David said these words, I will make myself more contemptible than this. He was pointing beyond Himself to someone, to a far-off descendant who would come and be born in that in a low condition, one who would come and undergo the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, and be buried In a borrowed tomb for a time for us and our salvation. And it's in musing upon how this greater David, this descendant from David, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, abased himself for us that we are fueled, equipped to live before him. Let me offer you a term as we close upstaging. Those of you that have a theater background, you know that term upstaging. What does it mean? Let our hearts always be upstaged by this Christ, this son of David. In a production, a theater production, at the end, all the actors on the stage will often back off or they'll turn their back to the audience. So the star would receive center attention. So the star would not be upstaged. And that is what David has come to see. And it's what the Holy Spirit wants us to see. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of our our christ our greater king and as a result we have all capacity to live before the lord may we be a people who could be characterized as living before you lord we pray that you would continue to deliver us from our idols From our God replacements. Our Messiah replacements. Father we want to see. Ourselves in David. Not Michael. But we can only do that. Because we're in Christ. The son of David. And Lord if there's any here today. That have never trusted in Christ. We pray today. They would see him for who he is. That they would not disregard him. Because they don't know in whom they are dealing with. They would see him with new eyes. Behold him and humble themselves and trust in him today. And We ask this for his sake. Amen.